This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Monday, April 8th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When the babies were in cages, when the counts of them were off, when the border crossings were down and they said they were up, when they touted a crisis of crossings, even though they were lower than in the entirety of the 80s, 90s, and aughts, and when they said there wasn't a policy of separating families, and when we found out that was a lie, and when, and when that lie was explained as, well, we were just following legal rulings or a decades-old law, when all of that was happening, remember this. The person at the center of that, former Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, was better than whoever will replace her like Sessions was better than Barr in terms of following laws of recusal and presidential privilege, like the inexperienced and overwhelmed Rex Tillerson was actually better than the ideologue Mike Pompeo, like McMaster, who actually was an upgrade at one point when he replaced Flynn, but like McMaster was better than John Bolton, like Reince was better than the Mooch, was better than Shine. Remember, all of that, all the new people are replacing better old people who were pretty bad to begin with. Remember, we started with an administration that, unlike all other administrations, made no effort to create a cabinet that reached across the aisle at all, tried to pull in experts who weren't in lockstep with them. So we started with this limited pool of loyalist non-experts, and most of the Republican establishment had already opted out of it. I'm not pining for a world where a Republican president appoints a bunch of liberals as secretaries. No, I'm talking about something like James Baker being Reagan's first and last chief of staff or George W. Bush's secretaries of state being Rice and Powell or his secretary of the treasury being Henry Paulson, who expended a lot of effort and personal credibility to push the bailout bill properly, by the way. Every Democratic president will start with a pool of candidates that excludes some number of experts just because they're Republican, but not all of them, just as every Republican administration will exclude the most liberal potential cabinet members. But the smart ones expand the pool as much as they can because they know expertise and talent often transcends party lines. But Trump started off with this extremely small pool of possible candidates, and the ones he hired were from a still narrower set. Remember, not Mitt Romney, but Rex Tillerson, right? Then he cycled through all those people, and then some of the most disastrous ones flamed out. But some of the best ones, the non-disastrous ones like Mattis and Nikki Haley and McMaster, they couldn't take it. And now we're left with this. The fourth string of the backups of the AA affiliates of a pre-integration league. It is not good. Also, the president fired his Secret Service director, Tex Alice, for, among other things, I am not making this up, having big ears. Seriously, the president called him Dumbo, the man who ran the Secret Service. Wouldn't that just be a wider surface area to take a bullet for you, Mr. President? I guess not. On the show today, I spiel about, should Joe Biden apologize? Wait, didn't he? No, not enough. But first, forget the guys who are running things. Let's talk about the guy behind the guy. The first totemic guy behind the guy was in Russia. His name was Rasputin, and he was pretty good at getting things done. Since then... There have been a number of iterations of Rasputins throughout the world, and Amos Barshad has written a book about all of them. He's here to discuss his new book, No One Man Should Have All That Power. 
how Rasputins manipulate the world. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The figure of Rasputin is a fascinating one, I think, for a couple of reasons. One reason is that he is shrouded in mystery. And him being shrouded in mystery means that he has a certain effect on the people who he's trying to influence. But the people he's trying to influence also becomes us at some point. So just as he uses his mystery to manipulate the kings and the queens or the pop stars, depending on how broadly you define Rasputin, we also never really know where the Rasputin ends and where the person in the public eye begins. It's all touched upon and delved into in the new book, No One Man Should Have All That Power, How Rasputins Manipulate the World. Amos Barshad is the author of that book. Thanks for coming in, Amos. Thank you. Have you always been fascinated by that figure? Yeah, pretty much. I, I try, I've been trying to remember, you know, the first time when he kind of came into my imagination. I really can't. Um, well, was it more the—I'm going to get into the difference between Rasputins yeah. and Svengali's. Was it more the idea of the power behind the throne or literally Rasputin, the mad monk in Russia? Literally Rasputin, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think probably similar to a lot of people, you know, you, you've heard his name, you know a little bit about the story. A lot of people kind of know about his death. That was the thing that was always fascinating to me. And, and it was one of those things where you always intend to read up more and you never do. Yes. And then once you do, you're just like, oh, my God. Wow, yeah. yeah. So looking at it from afar, one question is— how can this very humble peasant rise to such power? But the fact that he was a peasant, as you point out, very much appealed to the Tsarina, who was insecure because she didn't think the peasants liked her and knew her. She wasn't even Russian. Yeah. So that was really important to his right. rise, his humble roots. A lot yeah. of these Rasputins kind of 
push aside the humility or even lie about how humble their roots are for him it was really important yeah absolutely and you know it's not like he was strategizing the stuff as far as uh, we know but yeah. you know again who, who's to say um but uh but yeah exactly you know because he was this rough and humble peasant and he comes to the sarina and and, and it's been written about in various biographies of him you know he represents this this russian class that she has never been able to win over because uh she's originally she's german and you know people just don't trust her uh and she never quite feels like she fits in. So then there comes this guy who seems, you know, the like, like a platonic ideal of a, of, a, of a regular Russian man. And he's telling her how great she is. And, you know, God is behind her and God is behind Mother Russia. And, you know, everything will be all right. So you can understand the, uh, the appeal there, you know, why this particular peasant would, would be so, uh, you know, dear to her. But the main thing he did was he cured or at least convinced her that he had the ability to cure her hemophiliac son what is how does history explain that uh some people say he (laughs) was magical um but i think the uh my uh favorite and most sensible uh, explanation that i've seen uh douglas smith in his uh, 2016 biography kind of explicates it very well i think it's just a matter of this specific condition this specific medical condition actually uh you benefit a lot from calmness and not over medical meddling and obviously the you know son and the heir of the of the russian throne you would think there'd be 20 doctors in a room fussing around which is only exacerbating it you know rasputin comes and it's his nature to clear the room and speak to him softly and just regularly bedside manner had the desired effect uh you know medically speaking there wasn't any great mystery to it other than it, it made the kid calm down made him right. take a deep breath and, and 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 heal so this is the jumping off point and everyone else that you look at you call rasputins and you have a sort of checklist um i don't know if it's like uh the dsm-5 and if they <laughs> exhibit five of these seven symptoms <laughs> right, yeah. they get called. but what are some of the characteristics and then i want to ask you about kind of the taxonomy of the rasputin yeah uh well basically i tried to define it because as you said there are kind of a lot of permutations of this stuff so you know clearly you you need to be behind the scenes you need to be controlling uh, and you need to be controlling, you know, one or two people, one or two influential figures or, or a small group of, of, of figures that they themselves have power that was granted them through, you know, elections or some kind of legitimate manner. And you are the person behind the scenes who has what would be perceived as illegitimate power. And so from there, you know, you, you kind of get a little more cynical, a little darker. You know, you, you, should, you should have enemies because your control is seemed as, as, as illegitimate. You know, if you're not controversial, then you're probably not a Rasputin. And ultimately, you get to a point where why is this person behind the scenes if he's so clever and, and able to manipulate? And you get to a point where whatever that person wants to do, he, he can't. He doesn't have the skills to, to carry it out. Right. So a couple things about the real Rasputin. What was his personal agenda? Was it something other than, you know, wealth and influence? I, you know, there, there are the specific policy um, decisions that are that are ascribed to him. The, the the policy that he was pushing forward. The most famous one is that he wanted to have Russia not enter the First World War and to 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 leave it after the fact. He was very much a person who wanted to, you know, make sure that the people were eating, that food was available. Uh, you know, it was actually a wow, thing. I that, get behind this guy. Yeah, it was actually <laughs> very simple, very uh, <laughs> that crazy-eyed fellow with the large penis <laughs> yeah. has some good ideas. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he was said to, you know, have supported minority groups at a time where, you know, that wasn't a thing that anybody was doing. He was just a, a, a very a very simple man, you know, love everyone, all kind of things you would expect. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there's nothing too crazy about it. But the darkness comes from everyone assuming all these things around him right. so that, that that once he has the SARS ears, he can do whatever he wants. 
And it's true that he most likely did have, you know, ministers moved out of positions, people that were his enemies. But to me, uh, you know, actually after having done all this reporting and, and researching him, I do feel much more fondly towards him. And I think when it, when you see these situations where he was kind of maneuvering to to get his political enemies out of the scene, like at that point, it's, he's so deep into it. So right. it's almost a self-defense thing. I mean, of course, that's one interpretation. What is the connection between, who is it, Gordon Lish? the editor of Raymond Carver, who we have found out recently was maybe more than the editor. I guess my question with him being a Rasputin is how much do we know, uh, did he sort of torture and abuse Carver himself? Right, yeah. Well, you tell the story and then we'll talk about him as a Rasputin. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, Raymond Carver, you know, one of the most beloved writers of the 20th century, you know, uh, beloved for his minimalism and his short fiction, um, and then later on in, in his career, after his death, it was revealed through the Lish's archives that Gordon Lish, his editor through almost his entirety of, you know, his most famous uh, output, was cutting these stories down. So the original drafts were actually much longer, you yeah. know, characters were much different, and they get to this point where they barely talk and they and they don't really have feelings. It's, like, it's as if Ansel Adams, the greatest black and white photographer, actually photographed everything <laughs> in color. <laughs> right. And then the guy developing the film was like, nah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Very nice. Very well put. Yeah, so it's fascinating, you know, and so you you have these letters between them that have that have been revealed, and it's Carver kind of uh, later in his career when when things were going better for him. He started out, he, he was more or less anonymous. Um, he had a bad alcohol alcohol problem, so he didn't feel as strong to push back on these edits. But later in life, he kind of gets to this point where he's basically pleading, and it, and it, and it's extremely you know endearing, and, and you feel terrible for the guy because you yeah. see him like pouring his heart out, and he's asking Lish not to not to chop these ones down. You know, it's okay. What's happened has happened, but please, you know, leave these ones alone. And, and, and Lish ignores it, you know, and it's it's heartbreaking. But I think it is, again, on the spectrum, you know, I wouldn't say he's as bad as Spectre. I think uh, Lish and Carver had a, a genuine relationship. I think Lish cared about him in, in, in a different way than Spectre seems to care about. You know, I think Spectre saw the people that he worked with as his instruments. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Lish saw Carver as, as his instrument. I think he saw... A potential to work with a person to make greatness, and he was interested in doing that in a, in a genuine way. The arts ones are fascinating to me. They're they're all about collaboration, and you know, you an authorship, and you wonder how much the, when we say something's a Hitchcock film, what do we mean? But the political ones are the the most troubling ones. So Korea had a Rasputin fig- figure. I remember reading about that story. Why don't you uh, tell us about how that worked? Absolutely, yeah. So former President Park had a close personal friend from childhood named Choi Soon-sil, who was not officially an advisor in, in the way that some of the other figures in the book are. She was not anything official. She was just kind of in the orbit. And there is this whole convoluted drawn out controversy that starts with a with a tablet uh, a news organization in um, Seoul found this tablet it was a, a Choi Soon-sil tablet it had the actual president parks speeches that Choi Soon-sil had had edited from there it went on to all kinds of things were being revealed and all kinds of whistleblowers were coming forward about the relationship and, and it basically became clear that the president was relying on uh Choi Soon-sil for for kind of like spiritual support and you know best friend 
support and she was picking out her clothes. Uh, she was, you know, kind of telling her what kind of strange serums to try. Yeah, there, to, was, there was a puppy connection. Yeah. Some yeah. puppies went unattended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was all the there was all these kind of, you know, just Choice still has had her own kind of crew of people that were profiting off of being in this orbit. So it, it kind of touches this this whole array of, of of shady characters that you you know you don't want around a president. Uh, yes. but then at the end of the day it's kind of that thing of trying to figure out, you know, how bad was this? What actually was happening here? Was she enthralled to this woman in a way that could, you know, endanger her nation? Or yeah. was it something that, you know, every person needs a, a close friend? So the book on Rasputin's ends with, well, it ends with the actual Rasputin. But I think the penultimate chapter is Putin's Rasputin, yeah. <laughs> which not only rhymes, but takes us back to Russia. <laughs> Who is that guy and how real is the charge that he's a Rasputin? Uh, his name is Alexander Dugan. He's a uh, uh, kind of a well-known figure. Breitbart, I believe, was the one who had uh, called him Rasputin's brain. I'm uh, sorry, Putin's brain. Other publications are called Putin's Rasputin. Is one of those people that that, like you said, you know, people kind of like to try to figure out exactly where mm-hmm. where the connection is. So he he probably hasn't even you know been in the same room as Putin. I mean, he he he. His whole thing is that people started noticing that. Putin was borrowing phrases from him and and basically his whole expansionist foreign policy tactics there in 2014, 2015 were kind of coming from a lot of the stuff that Dugan was pushing forth. So as I mentioned in the book, the Masha Gessen book, The Future is the Past, kind of breaks it down in a very interesting way. And she makes the case that it was more of a case of, you know, Putin hunting around for an ideology and he found this guy. Right. When you analyze the shared psychology of all the Rasputins, do they always accept or know or take as a given that they could never be the one with power? Is it hard for them to, you know, not be the figurehead? I think that, you know, someone like Dugan would, would say absolutely not. His place in history is to be this uh, this figure. But, but, but at the same time, you know, deep down inside, if you got him on a, on a good day in the morning, he might admit to you the truth that, uh, that yeah, absolutely, you know, he'd want to, to be running things rather than hoping to pull the strings from afar. And then, you know, you have Lish, who in various interviews has been very forthcoming about, you know, because he wrote his own fiction, which yeah. didn't sell well, you know, has, it wasn't critically acclaimed, coming to terms with the fact that for some reason he couldn't get there doing his own thing. He had to do it through editing. And so that's fascinating to me. I think a lot of these people can't admit it to themselves, wouldn't admit it to themselves. You know, it'd be something. I think Steve Bannon knows, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't be palatable yeah. to the electorate. Right, yeah, yeah. I think, well, Scooter Braun can't play an instrument. Right. doesn't play an instrument. Right. He claims he dances a little. Right. So some of these guys probably know for sure could never be them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I wonder if it grates on them that it can't be them. I think it must, you know, I and mean, I think that's kind of like the tragedy which ultimately makes them endearing. I don't know if endearing is the right word, but somehow you... Fascinating you, and compelling. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah, it's a harder to dismiss them. It's harder to, to, to write them off once you realize that maybe this comes from some kind of place of longing, you know, and, 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 and which is admitted by various figures to various degrees. So some of these characters, real people in the book, you sat down with and interviewed. Others, for different reasons, you couldn't get to. Rasputin, the reason was obvious. He's dead in the river. (laughs) If you had to, I'm not going to say ask him one question, but if you wanted to learn one thing from him, what would be that strain of questions you'd want to know? I think just sitting down with him, which 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 would be amazing, <laughs> and just hearing him talk. I think uh, you know, because because there are 
direct accounts of people quoting him directly. But again, with him, it's really hard to to tell how yeah. much is ginned up after the fact. Yeah, a lot uh, of the information comes from his murderer, who yeah. is, of course, a little yeah. uh, a little biased in his accounts. Right, yeah. absolutely, yeah, which, but, which makes for fun reading. But this woman, Teffy, has an amazing account of basically a dinner party that she attended with Rasputin. And the quotes she attributes to him sound absolutely insane, which, you know, I tend to trust her more than most sources. So if, if it's anything like the stuff that she was putting out there, I think it would be a Dugan experience where you're sitting there, you're just letting the man, you know, wash over you. Uh, it'd be hard to push one way or the other. It's just a kind of a unique, strange force. So I'd love to just sit there, hear him out, listen to him. Um, I think eventually you could you could get to a point where you're asking him, what's going on, man? Like, what's going on with you in the right. arena? And I think you'd get a, a straight answer. Amy, she gave me a great idea, the Rasputin cast, a 12-part <laughs> series, a oh, podcast. Perfect, let's just go. Rasputin on Rasputin. Well, I talked to my agent. No, we're going to cut the agent out. That's it. You and me. No, we're not giving away our 15%. (laughs) No one man should have all that power. How Rasputins manipulate the world. Amos Barshad is the author. Thanks for coming in, Amos. Thank you so much. And now, the spiel. This whole ongoing ordeal of asking if Joe Biden mishandled his mishandling of Mrs. and Mrs. who couldn't handle it, I guess there's no one answer. And so I think we need to hear the words, I'm sorry for how I made you feel, come from the vice president as part of moving forward on this issue. There's a lot of affection for Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, as as Speaker Pelosi said this week, most people don't see this as disqualifying in itself. Uh, But they want to talk about it and they want to hear him talk about it and they want to hear a satisfactory answer from him. And he hasn't necessarily provided that so far. I think what most would have liked to have seen was him say, I'm sorry I made you uncomfortable. Right. Even if that wasn't his intention, because in this day and age, it's not necessarily about that. It's about owning up to the fact that you offended someone. And actually, he could have been a model here to say, you know what? I did grow up in a different generation and it's not okay. And we're in a new model now and I'm going to like show you the way. Right. And I was looking for that from him. Well, what if he said something like, I've always tried to make a human connection. That's just the way I've always been. But social norms have begun to change. They've shifted and the boundaries have been reset. I hear I understand. I get it. I will be more mindful and respectful of people's public space. What if he said that? Oh, yeah, he did say that. And it's not good enough. It's not exactly what some of those critics said he should say. But it seems pretty, pretty close. Maybe not as close as Joe Biden got with some of the women that we're talking about, but pretty close. I think this never-ending, Biden should apologize and should apologize in this way and should apologize with these words, I think the conversation's pretty stupid, so I should drop it, right? It's a stupid conversation. Let's move on. No, that's exactly my thesis. It's stupid. That's why I should pursue it. Because at the point where some consensus emerges and that consensus says about anything we're talking about, oh, now's the time to drop it, well, the it usually gets dropped and no one feels satisfied. The unapologized, too, feel ignored. The non-apologizers feel they sidestepped it, but they're still pretty resentful that people are demanding it. I want to weigh in and tell you why Joe Biden shouldn't apologize. And maybe you'll hear it and say, I disagree. Or maybe you'll hear it and you'll say, I agree. But at least you'll know it's not just an ignoring and a sidestepping. So here we go. First, let's talk about the types of things that politicians should apologize for. There are many, many things, misdeeds, indiscretions, associations, flaws, personal failings, sinning against you, my Lord. I have sinned against you, my Lord. But all apologies that public figures, politicians in particular, all apologies they give fall into one broad category. A thing 
that would hurt them if they didn't apologize. Maybe sometimes you could also say there are things that would help them if they did apologize. I tend to see that as a subcategory of the main one, things that would hurt them if they didn't apologize. On neither score, it would hurt him if he didn't, or it would help him if he did, am I sure that Joe Biden should apologize? And he has apologized. He hasn't apologized by name to Lucy Flores or the other offended parties, but he has said, I'm sorry I didn't understand you. Which seems good to me, but then he added, I'm not sorry for any of my intentions. I'm not sorry for anything that I have ever done. I've never been disrespectful intentionally to a man or a woman. This was not received as an apology, okay? But he did say he didn't think he did anything wrong. And he does say he is sorry that he didn't understand better or understand more. Should he apologize for instilling this feeling of ickiness or unsafety? Should he apologize for instilling this feeling that he didn't mean to cause? A lot of people say yes. And that's really the nub of it. It's not about the intention of the offender. It's about the feelings of the offended. Okay, that's actually a little bit debatable, and I'm not doing anything to minimize the experiences of the women who went through this, but let's note this. If Joe Biden had lived his professional life uh, avoiding the types of contact that he's being criticized for now, if he lived his professional life that way, it wouldn't have been much of a professional life. His success as a politician isn't that he's the guy writing the bills or mastering the policy. It's not that he's an undying party hack who delivers benefits to the faithful. He's not Mitch McConnell, a guy who doesn't care what you think of him. He just cares about what his base thinks of him. He's not Dan Rostenkowski, who only wants to secure federal largesse for his district. He's a guy who emotes. He's emotive. That is his stock and trade. He's a connector. So this apology to him must feel, hmm, should I apologize for my essence as a public figure? Should I apologize for everything that got me here? No, just the bad stuff. Yeah, but the bad stuff is part of the good stuff. That without asking, I go in and go nose to nose with someone or touch someone's hair. And thousands of times it's good and it's worked. And the track record shows that it's worked. And I don't know, so far eight, but I'm sure dozens of times it hasn't. Tell me, I should apologize for the dozens? Is what must he be thinking? Which is why he's not apologizing. And let's also be honest about this. There is a cost to apologizing. Maybe you could say it's a psychic cost. You get to live the way you've been living without really examining yourself, telling yourself that what you've been doing is actually laudable, not regrettable. That's probably true. But politically, when you apologize, it gives credence to those who would criticize your past behaviors. And the people who ask for an apology do not care about that, do not care if doing so would hurt Joe Biden with his goals in the future, which it seems to be would be to become president. It seems like the majority of them would rather that America view Joe Biden's past behaviors in general in a negative way. I'm not getting at their motivations. I'm just saying, should you apologize? Well, do your, what do your apologizers want? They want you to say to them by name, I'm sorry I did this. Okay, why do they want that? And then it comes up, well, they want it because it would make them feel better. But let's also be honest, they know you're running for president. And they don't want you to be president. It's not entirely motivating them. It's a motivation. Some of them, anyway, I've read of the eight accusers, there are a couple who haven't stated who they want to be president, and one or two might even vote for Joe Biden. Also, and I'm sure Joe Biden sees what I see about apologies, they're not usually accepted. Usually, 
I could think of one or two apologies for actions that perhaps weren't so terrible that were pretty widely celebrated. Jonah Hill said something on Howard Stern about using a derogatory term for gay people and Everyone loved Jonah Hill for it. Jonah Hill's a lovable guy. I've rarely ever seen an apology where the reaction was, well, that's good. You did a great job. We could put it all past us. No, I mean, it adds to the news cycle. Twitter's an outrage machine. It usually doesn't solve much. I mean, let's say we live in a country of, I don't know, three bears. For some, the apology will be too far. For others, many others, it will surely be not far enough. And for the ones who will say, oh, that apology was just right, those are the exact ones who are not calling for an apology in the first place. This whole thing of running for president, it's not a journey of self-actualization, despite what Beto might be implying. It's not about becoming a better person. Maybe an apology would help Joe Biden be a better person or help make some of these eight women who didn't like being touched in that way, feel better about themselves or their experience. What it is a journey of is projecting qualities that will be deemed presidential by a majority of the voters, or at least the right minority because the Electoral College is fakakta. Presidential's an ambiguous term, but I don't see a lot of evidence that presidential strongly correlates for owning up to things that most people don't think are a big deal. They might be wrong, but to go too far into it opens yourself up to a lot of problems, a lot of distractions, a lot of challenges. The man is running for president after all. If you can't make an extremely strong moral case, look, I don't care if it hurts his presidency. He is a bad person if he doesn't do this. Or if you can't make a practical case, he's going to be shooting himself in the foot if he doesn't apologize for this. Then I don't think you can make a case for Joe Biden issuing an apology. Apologizing for things that you don't think you did wrong and that evidence shows all but a small slice of potential voters think you did wrong, that seems stupid. Not as a person, as a potential president, which, let's face it, is the only reason right now we care about Joe Biden nuzzling a woman in Connecticut nine years ago. So I'm going to admit something to you about the Internet and my 47-year-old self, I don't actually know what the definition of a concern troll is. I hear the phrase used, and I think I'm going to use it right. Two other things I don't know the definition of, really, a subtweet. I'm also a little hazy on tone policing. Maybe these things mean a lot of different things. But I think what is going on might be concern trolling. I'm really not questioning the motives of people who want a real apology. It might help them, though there are signs that it won't. There are lots and lots of signs it won't help Joe Biden. And that's why those asking for an apology are probably not going to get it. And if that upsets you, I'm sorry. But he is probably not. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader, who will not apologizing for criticizing that Demi Lovato song that embraces either ambiguity or indecision. It's about being sorry or not being sorry. Hey, how come when Walt Whitman says it, he's a poet, but when Demi Lovato says it, she still gets confused with Ariana Grande? I ask you. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She is the power behind the gist's throne. She's our own Rasputin, but without, you know, the crazy eyes or the fits of ecstatic reverie or any of the other less work-appropriate stuff. The gist. We would never fire a Secret Service agent for having big ears. Think about it. It's like radar attached to your face. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.